This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and today's episode is all about Rosie Miles, the girl of the wild. In my role as a lecturer in science communication and wildlife film and media at UE Bristol, one of my very favourite things about the job is meeting brilliant people who are coming through as students on the various courses. A few years ago, Rosie Miles was one of those students. These days, Rosie is living in Malawi as a wildlife consultant for African parks. And now she's published her first book. And I began by asking her, are you the girl of the wild? I am the girl of the wild. (laughs) It's been a long time ambition to write this book. I didn't think I would ever actually do it. But um, this year with COVID lockdowns, the opportunity arose through a a good friend of mine who is an Amazon bestselling author who wanted to support budding uh, newbie authors to write their first books. So this book was something that I wanted to do purely for my own benefit so that when I'm old and senile, I can reflect back on this pretty crazy last 10 years of my life and know that it is all true and it's not just part of old age mind going a little bit nuts and yeah covers of sort of the last 10 years of my life uh, working in the African bush having extreme and bonkers experiences nearly every day and just trying to sort of put them into context of how that becomes my normal reality uh, out here so the book is a mixture of funny, scary and crazy events that go on if you live in the wild, like I do. How, do. how did you end up being the girl of the wild? Basically, I grew up in a household where Africa was sort of part of daily life. My grandmother grew up here um, and she lived with us when I was a child. And every day after school, she would, I would have a cup of tea with her. Um, I was, I'm the youngest in my family, so I was the first one home from school. My elder brother and sister were at high school parents out at work so every afternoon I'd have a cup of tea with granny and um, she'd tell me stories about her childhood in Africa um, then my dad came when he was 18 uh, my brother came when he was 18 and it's just it was just a natural progression that I would visit Africa at some point so I did straight after school and I had sort of this life-changing experience that I won't go into detail because it is described in the book that just suddenly made me realize that this was my home and I really wanted to pursue a life out here. When I went home after that trip, my parents encouraged me to go to university instead, (laughs) maybe somewhat understandably. (laughs) Uh, So I did. (laughs) Um, I I went to university, did a postgrad, ended up in a very good job. And before I knew it, it was sort of 10 years down the line and I wasn't in Africa and I was living a, uh, I wouldn't say boring life, but I I was enjoying it, but a very normal life in an office, working for the government, sitting at a computer all day. But in the back of my head was there's always this little niggle that Africa was calling. And something happened that is described in the book that triggered this uh, niggle to sort of erupt and 
before I knew it, my bags were packed and I was heading off to South Africa to train as a safari guide. Um, having no wildlife experience, I studied astronomy and geology at university. I wasn't particularly obsessed with animals. I was not the kid that was bringing back injured mice to rehabilitate in the bedroom or anything like that. I really had quite little interaction with wildlife, but I was obsessed with wildlife documentaries. I'd watched every David Attenborough documentary around, and I actually probably did know more about African wildlife than UK wildlife. So there was always this thing in the background, but I had very little sort of physical interactions with wildlife up until that point. And yeah, I just landed in South Africa and did a 12-month course to train as a safari guide. And that is where my journey in the bush began. And now, like I assume this isn't in the book because it happened a few days ago as far as I could tell. You're flying over the bush, right? You're getting a plane and... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so... (laughs) My job basically just gets better and better every year, um, which is great. <laughs> um, and where I am at the moment is that I'm in Malawi working with African Parks, um, big NGO that manage uh, protected areas across Africa. And the reserve that I'm in at the moment is particularly inaccessible. We have don't have a lot of roads. The terrain is rough. It's very mountainous and a lot of rivers so when the rivers are flowing they get washed out and the animals move around a lot so once in a while not every day but once in a while I get to go up in the plane or the helicopter and track from the air as opposed to the ground and I love flying more than anything in the world especially in a helicopter (laughs) so (laughs) it is definitely the biggest bonus of my job for sure Mm. it's fantastic just to see the the land from a different perspective from the air is yeah it's pretty special I do feel very very lucky um, that I get to do that as my job the concept of African parks projects is that they take on parks that have really in dire straits um so Majeti for the last 50 years literally had no animals at all it was still it was a a forest reserve it was set aside as a reserve so there weren't people living in it but uh the, the wildlife had been completely decimated by poaching um so african parks took it on about just under 20 years ago and started reintroducing the species that were originally here back into the land putting in the infrastructure to protect them and my job is to then monitor how those animals are doing and provide advice on what to do from a management perspective. So um, particularly with the predators and then our large herbivores like rhinos and elephants, they can have quite significant impacts on other species and on the ecosystem if their populations grow too fast. And this is a, it's a fenced reserve with a very high human population on the outside. So there's going to be no natural migration of animals to neighbouring reserves. It's just not possible. Malawi's got incredibly high human population density. So the the reserve, from the boundary of the reserve, it just turns into farmland and settlements. So animals are not going to move through that. So there's no natural dispersal. So we have to monitor the population growth and decide when it gets to a point where animals might have to be translocated to help repopulate other parks or we need to bring in fresh genetic diversity by swapping males and females around with other parks so the land 
under African parks and particularly within Malawi, where we have four um, parks, is really manage as a meta population. So instead of ind each individual park being managed individually, uh, at some levels they are, but for the wildlife, we see them as being contiguous. It's just we have to actively move the animals around. So it's a it's a very heavily sort of hands-on management way of dealing with wildlife. And for the last two years, I've been in Botswana where there's no fences and there's virtually no human management. It's just doing research on animals in their natural habitat. So it's it's quite foreign sort of uh, way of working for me, but it's fascinating. And it, it means I get to do a lot of hands-on work. I'm darting, um, collaring animals every week and really getting to know in depth the individual animals and knowing who they're hanging out with, who they're breeding with, who they're the father and the mother of, and sort of trying to predict in advance when things are going to start interrupting the natural ecosystem and when we have to make interventions. Hmm. Do you get, do you sort of spend enough time watching them to see individual characters? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's my favourite part of the job, actually. I really like getting to know personalities of the animals and it's all it's tricky a lot of scientists say you shouldn't name your study animals and there's the risk of anthropomorphizing too much with them but for me I think it's up to different individuals but for me I actually I think I do my job better when I really have an in-depth understanding of the individuals and, and what's happening it helps me predict where they're going to be which saves time than when I'm tracking them but also from that management perspective knowing that this male is is um, on his way out or, or whatever but yeah particularly with the cheetahs which have been my favorite animal since I was a little kid so I'm really honored to be able to work with them and I actually work with them on foot so I track the cheetahs on foot um, walking in the bush trying to avoid all the other dangerous animals um, and cheetahs are really naturally easy to habituate to humans they don't see us as a threat and they don't see us as prey so they're not really dangerous to work with in an, in the wild encaged animals in captivity is a different story because they're under different types of stresses but in the wild you can really walk very close to them i can stand within a couple of meters of the cheetahs and they just ignore me completely <laughs> and carry on with their hunting and mating or whatever they happen to be doing and they really have strong personalities and particularly female cheetahs I find I've worked with them for the last 10 years and I find they they have multiple personality disorders <laughs> so <laughs> on, on one day they're super chilled and they're almost like happy to see you and they'll come and lie down and just relax and then the next day you'll walk in and think everything is the same and they're really angry at you <laughs> and they will charge but they don't follow through so uh, it's always fun to take someone who's never walked with a cheetah before and and get them charged and see their reactions <laughs> but, <laughs> but they, just, they don't follow through it's uh it's fun and yeah they really have strong personalities and I really I really enjoy working with those um, and we've just received wild dogs for the first time in Malawi for 50 years and I'm just getting to know these guys now. They're actually still in their um, holding boma. When new animals arrive, we put them in an enclosure to allow them to acclimatize to their new um, environment and also for us to get a chance to 
get to know them and check that there's no health issues or things like that before they're released into the reserve. So they're still in their holding burma at the moment. And I'm, yeah, I'm starting to learn their personalities too now. <laughs> you can imagine they're just like domestic dogs. They have quite a lot. They, they like to play. They like to jump on each other the whole time. They're always talking because they're very communicative with each other. So yeah, that's a new one for me. So they're fascinating. Yeah. I'm looking forward to working with them. I can imagine that they would be um, more likely to follow through than a cheetah. Then. No, not at all. They're, I don't think there's ever been a recorded incident of a wild dog attacking a human in the wild. In in the, yeah, and not in captivity. Um, they're they're much more skittish than the cheetahs. Actually, it takes it's it's harder to habituate them. Um, they generally find to cars, but on foot they're quite they they'll just run away basically. Um, but yeah, they're they're not dangerous really to work with at all. So and this is what we're trying to sort of train my Malarian colleagues to not be afraid of them <laughs> <laughs> because they've they've never seen them before. Have they're not been any none of them have any experience of wild dogs. And yeah, they can look a little bit scary. And when you see them feeding, then yeah, it's quite horrific. It's not horrific that's not the wrong word it's just natural but it's it's not for the faint-hearted to watch a wild dog eat its prey and of course they could easily do that to a human as well but but the fact is they just don't um i don't know if there's some sort of ancient link between humans and dogs um that just means that they are not that way inclined but yeah they they generally run away from you um, the cheetahs are much more feisty. <laughs> so, if a cheetah was charging at me, I think my instinct would be probably to run. It's hard to know, right? But I probably run, which seems incredibly stupid because I'm definitely not faster than a cheetah. <laughs> <laughs> Only food runs in the bush. You never run. <laughs> okay, what do you do then? Generally speaking, with most wildlife, um, I mean, I wouldn't want to encourage anyone to follow this advice because it really depends on a on the case by case with individual animals in the situation and you shouldn't be encountering dangerous animals if you're not qualified to do so but for the most part most wild animals are scared of humans even lions um during the day if you're standing up um and a lion will generally run away from you and which is crazy because they're obviously could easily eat me <laughs> if they wanted to <laughs> um but there's this innate fear of humans that's just developed over the millennia of humans being the dominant predator on the landscape. Um, and if you stand your ground, make yourself big, shout at animals. Um, there's a there's a few examples in my book of, of me having to do this. Then for the most part, they will turn around eventually. Um, but as I say, it obviously varies from case to case. You get You might get an animal that's injured and feeling threatened or if a, a lioness has cubs and you're um, between her and the cubs or you're threat or she feels like you're threatening the cubs then then in those situations then yeah standing your ground doesn't work <laughs> but running right. also doesn't help so, <laughs> so then you're just Fair in enough. trouble yeah, yeah. well I did, yeah it's, it's a very much. foreign uh, world to me I've got some guinea pigs in there they have different characters but they're definitely not a threat in any way um, <laughs> but it's amazing because I you know before we had guinea pigs I I didn't think for a second that they'd have characters I thought they'd just be sort of 
eating machines, but they're so different. Each individual is so different. And if yeah. that's the same, if that's true of guinea pigs, it's surely it's true of cheetahs and rhinos. And, you know, do you, are individual rhinos more grumpy than other ones and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of females that I try to avoid here that are a little bit temperamental. And then at, with the elephants too, there's a few females that are a lot more feisty than others and then generally the older bulls both in the rhinos and the elephants are a lot more chilled out you get they get to an age where they've relaxed and they know they're the big boys and they don't feel threatened so they're happy to just let you do your business and, and walk on past that sounds better than humans I wish the big boy humans would just be happy and not ponce around in parliaments making stupid decisions. I uh, this the, writing the book was it everything you thought it would be? It was actually a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be, which is great. Um, I knew I re I knew I really wanted to do it. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to, but the process we went through was was really great actually and. For me, I'm a scientist and I never thought English was my worst subject at school. And I really, I didn't think I could write creatively. And so I guess writing a memoir helps a little bit with that because it was, to me, it wasn't creative. It was, it was actually quite a scientific process that I went through to write the book. So that's, I think, why I found it a very comfortable thing to do. So we started out, I should say, I did. I wrote the book as part of this course. There were three of us that were invited to, to write this book as, as new authors or write our own memoir as, as new authors. So each week we met on Zoom um, because obviously this is during COVID era and actually we were all we were spread out all across the world as well, which was quite nice. So we'd meet each week on Zoom and have to go through exercises and for the first few weeks, we didn't even talk about starting writing the book. It was about going through different writing exercises, creating timelines. And then we actually structured each of the chapters. So we knew how many chapters there were going to be and what the content was going to be in those chapters. So then when it came to writing phase, um, we had to write two chapters a week, which sounds like a lot, but actually it didn't take up didn't take that much time for me um and I didn't actually write it, the whole book in order I I wrote them out the chapters out of order um but because I knew what was going to be in each chapters that didn't really matter so if I knew one day I woke up and said like, I feel like writing about elephants today okay elephants were in chapter eight so then I would just write about the elephants but what I found interesting was that I hadn't planned exactly which stories to include in the chapters so I had planned out the chapters in terms of what the topics were going to be but I just sat down and just and free wrote the first things that came into my head and what surprised me at the end of that was that I I was quite happy with the balance because I I didn't want it to all be just these are really scary things that happen and I'm really brave because that's not my story I wanted it to be funny I wanted it I wanted to be quite vulnerable. Um, I did struggle in the beginning. I was scared of everything and I made a lot of mistakes and I wanted that to come across. But then there is a progression through the book as I gain confidence and experience. And then, and I think that is, that's reflected in the book. So I purposely structured the chapters in that way that the, the latter chapters are covering the topics of 
the animals that I'm more familiar with and more comfortable with um, and feel very happy with whereas the beginning it's talking about the things that I really struggled with like the snakes <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I actually I think I was surprised at the end that that despite the fact that I hadn't planned each story or like which stories I was going to include I've probably only included less than 10% of the anecdotes that I could have included in the book and if I rewrote it now I probably would use different stories but despite that I'm really happy with with the variety and and how it flows so and as I say I think for me that came through as part of a scientific process I went through as opposed to a creative writing process so I think anyone can write a book I think that's what I took away from it is that you don't have Mm. you don't have to be the best in English at school and you don't have to be artistic I think there are different ways to write a book and I wrote it in a way that suits my sort of expertise and the things that I feel comfortable with which is I did loads of spreadsheets to write this book which is uh, this is probably a little bit crazy but I love spreadsheets <laughs> so that didn't work for me yeah, yeah. yeah no I think well I suppose these different books uh, you know there's they say there's a book in everyone I hope there's more than one in you sounds like there is if you've had the life over the last 10 years that is so rich that you know there are all these stories that are on the cutting room floor then it's been a good 10 years right oh yeah definitely um i i very strongly believe i'm going to write an, another book if not a book then um at least i want to carry on writing blogs and articles and things like that i really really enjoy the writing side and sharing so sharing stories that have a, a little bit of an education side to them about conservation and wildlife that was that was another thing that was very important to me that it included things in my book that people would be like oh I didn't know that about an animal or or just raise awareness about different conservation issues and I absolutely have so much more to say (laughs) about those kind of things so I'm I will write another book I don't think I want to write a a straight-up sequel that's with the same format um I think I, I would get frustrated by doing that and not feel satisfied by that that outcome so um i'm trying to think about different different sorts of formats or different styles to carry on writing but i just enjoyed the process so much i don't really care if anyone even buys the book it was just a really pleasurable thing to do so yeah but i I do want you all to buy the book (laughs) 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 and you should read it and you should enjoy it but um but that wasn't actually important to me when i was writing it in the first place it was just the the pure joy of remembering all these stories Hmm. and writing them down Hmm. don't worry if this is putting you on the spot too much but is is there a story that didn't make it into the book that you'd like to share with us gosh well funnily enough i didn't include well apart from in the opening um literally the opening thing in the book I didn't include any stories about cheetahs and cheetahs have pretty much been my lifeblood for the last 10 years so I think this I could write a whole book on cheetahs alone um it would be less sort of amusing anecdotal style to the book I've just written but there's a lot of things I feel very passionate about cheetah um conservation that I would like to put in some format in a very sort of reader-friendly, not conservation-bashing way. What do you mean by that? 
I write blogs and articles that are sort of very awareness raising or have done for, for my jobs. I mean, um, and I don't want it to be like that, but I want people to learn about cheetahs from it and become as passionate about cheetahs as I am. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I have a, I basically followed a, a dynasty of cheetahs for a very long time, um, a, a family that went through a lot of hardships that I followed day in, day out. And I think it's quite a powerful story that I will write at some point. Okay. Not where I am now, but in my, my home back in the UK, I literally had wall-to-wall pictures of this one family of cheetahs where people, other people have photos of their, their family members on their wall. Yeah, yeah. I just had wall-to-wall pictures of this family of cheetahs um, and they meant a lot to me. So wow. I think there's a book in there at some point. It sounds, yeah, absolutely. I'd read that totally. Um, so if there's any publishers listening, then... Well, you know what to do. <laughs> Let's make that happen. Yeah. I've got your book, it's Girl of the Wild, arriving tomorrow morning. I, I think I'm going to be slightly jealous when I read it, but um, I, <laughs> I will forgive you so long as that cheetah book comes out in the future and I can read that. All right. Stuff. It's a deal. Okay. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Um, which, with this course that you did or um, the science communication course you did in Bristol, which one was better? <laughs> Uh, this course was a lot less stressful than the science course. <laughs> I couldn't say that for one thing. <laughs> I mean, I did make the mistake of trying to do that psychoms course at Bristol whilst working full time for the RSPB. So, um, and commuting from Cambridge to Bristol, um, and it was yeah, that was tough. I'm not going to lie, but it was a fantastic course, and I learnt a lot um and I definitely put a lot of the skills that I learned from that into writing this book um particularly sort of refining my writing um and and self-editing um I, I was a lot more ruthless with my writing and editing than I would have been if I hadn't done that course um but yeah I mean that course is fantastic I've stayed in contact with quite a few of the guys that were on that course and I really hope I will get to use more of those skills um I purchased myself a nice Canon um 5D Mark IV after that course and I've been trying to refine my filmmaking as well because that's what I really like to do combine my writing with with photos and films of of what I'm experiencing um I couldn't put any pictures in my book this time unfortunately just because the cost is quite prohibitive for first-time authors to add images but I have a lot so I'm just looking at other ways to share those photos that match the stories that I've told in the book but yeah filming is where I want to go forwards with that as well brilliant brilliant sounds like a good idea so the illustrations on the front cover of the book though can you tell me about that? I worked with a designer called Stuart Kinlaw, who's based in the UK. He's a fantastic uh, designer, completely out of his normal frame of reference. He does like marketing stuff. But I'd worked with him on a previous project, Bird Life, on a chocolate bar wrapper, of all things, <laughs> which was a, a, a conservation-minded, rainforest-friendly, fair trade chocolate bar that RSPB produced. Um, and still sell in the RSPB shops and it's fantastic chocolate and I worked with him on the design for those wrappers and I loved 
what he how he did it so when i was writing the book i i immediately as soon as i started writing the book i knew i wanted him to design the cover so um i called him up and we had just a brief discussion i sent him loads of photos from the from the bush to give him an idea and I gave him little teasers of what the different chapters were. And then I just left it to him to come up with the concept. And what he sent back to me is pretty much exactly what the cover looks like now. And what was so lovely was that he actually used my photos and just digitized them in a very sort of funky, modern, graphical way. And I just loved it. I wasn't expecting him to do that. I thought he was going to draw the, the images from the photos, but he actually just digitize the photos um or well, not just I mean it was a very, it was a difficult process for him to do and I think it looks fantastic I love I love it he even he came up with the color scheme and it's like my favorite colors and I was actually wearing an outfit that matched the colors of the book cover when he sent it to me so everything just sort of fell into place and I knew it was perfect mm. um but for me now it's sort of means even more because I know the individual animals that are on the front cover and some of my friends that I've worked with over the last 10 years will also recognize those. Um, so it, it looks beautiful to anyone who doesn't know those animals, but there's like a little bit of a special place also for me in, in using those individuals that I know Lovely. who feature in the book as well. There's, there's stories about those animals in the book. So it's like, it was just perfect for me. <laughs> I'm really happy with the cover. That's really cool. Now, I, I think that's the thing. Whenever you do a creative project, there's always or almost always a moment where the fact of you doing that project has created, has made somebody else create something else beautiful. And that front cover mm. is that for you. And it's just, it just, it's such a beautiful moment, isn't it? I just love that. It's that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, I'm good. No, I've got one more question and then I'll let you go. Which is so astronomy, right? And uh, there's uh, some good night skies there. There's a fantastic night skies here. I studied astronomy in London, and if you can imagine, <laughs> we didn't see many stars. <laughs> I had two nights a week at the observatory in Mill Hill. Um, probably more than half of those were cloudy nights, and we ended up just looking at previous nights' photographs because we couldn't see anything through the telescopes. So the skies here are absolutely phenomenal. Winter down here is the dry season. So we have literally no clouds for about six months of the year. And the skies are massive and limited light pollution. Um, so, yeah, they just it just blows my mind. The Milky Way is just stunning. Um, obviously, the the different stars from what I was looking at in the northern hemisphere. Everything is upside down, <laughs> but um, but it's just beautiful. And I'm trying to refine my night photography at the moment. Um, I I need a different lens. That's what I need to go and buy a new lens. But um, yeah, it's just blows your mind. So if you're interested in astronomy, yeah, come to the African bush and you will have your mind blown. Right. Well, I'm not coming to the African bush because I would have to um, hang out with you for a bit and you'd make cheetahs charge at me. So I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, would, I wouldn't. <laughs> Literally said that you find that fun. So I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, right, I'll let you go. That is wonderful. Oh, no, before you go, what um, if people want to follow what you're doing, what would they do? And do you have a preferred place for people to buy your book? Uh, yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram um, at safari underscore smiles. Um, I generally keep everyone up to date with my goings on there. Uh, a little bit of bragging about what I do and a little bit sharing of nice photos, but a lot of just pointing out how bonkers my life is. Yeah, currently the book is for sale on Amazon Worldwide uh, in paperback and in ebook um, format. So should be accessible to anyone, really, hopefully. I, I know a lot of my friends in South Africa are complaining because they can't get the paperback version out here, so I might have to ship out a, a container load for them and sell them myself. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for anyone back home, uh, head on to Amazon and search for Girl of the Wild. Of course, we'll post links to that on the Cosmic Shed website, thecosmicshed.com. And thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. see you again and you it's been a long time so thanks for getting in touch Andrew I hope you enjoyed that and I can highly recommend Rosie's book which I've now read and so is the rest of my family we all absolutely loved it I hope you enjoy reading the book I'm sure you will you can get it from the link on the Cosmic Shed website or of course simply googling for Rosie Miles Girl of the Wild and we'll be back very soon when Hannah and Steve will be talking to Robin Ince who you might know from Oh, what's it called? It's another podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.